Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back uh, to the podcast. We are going to be basically wrapping up the Old Testament today. Uh, we'll still have a couple more episodes kind of going back, uh, catching some of the poetry, and then looking at the time between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings. But um, what we're going to look at today is the, the return from captivity. Uh, the people of God have been taken away from the land. I mean, again, it looks like God's promises are being reversed. They're just numerically a fraction of what they were. Um, they are still kind of a, a nation, but not really politically anymore. You know, they don't have kings or government at this point. They're captives in a foreign land, and they've been taken out of the land of promise that Joshua led them into. And so it's like, wow, you know, are we just hitting the reset button? What's going on? And this is 70 years, like mm-hmm. we talked about last week. The prophet said, hey, it's going to look like everything's over. But this is for a limited time. It's going to be 70 years that you're going to be in captivity, and then there's going to be an opportunity to return. And so what we're going to be looking at is the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've been in the prophets for a little while. We're now returning to the historical books and going to look at this return from captivity, kind of re- restoration of God's promises. Yeah, God has been faithful to his promises um, up until this point. He has been completely just in his punishment of Israel and Mm -hmm. Judah in their rebellion, he told them that they would be cast out into captivity or that they would be punished or kicked out of the land. And so we're not surprised that this happened. And we're also not surprised by the mercy and grace of God as he goes to allow the people to come back into the land and to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, and to kind of get a portion back of what they formerly had when David was king and Solomon and all those guys. Yeah. So... The book of Ezra is where we're going to start, and again, we got to go warp speed today. We're just overviewing these books, and so we really encourage everyone to go back and read these on, uh, in more depth. There's so much here. But the book of Ezra picks up um, with the proclamation of Cyrus, king of Persia. And, and we'll just go ahead and note here that we're, we're moving through different world empires at this point. You will remember that during the divided kingdom, the kingdom of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, right. <laughs> came in around 722 and took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. Assyria, as an empire, fell to Babylon shortly before Babylon came in, uh, what is it, uh, about 605, that first wave of captivity we talked about last week. And so now Babylon was the world empire for a while. And now during the lifetime of Daniel, you know, we talked about um, how Daniel interpreted this dream for Nebuchadnezzar where there are these four parts of the statue that talk about four kingdoms, Mm -hmm. Babylon and then the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. Well, now we're into the chest and arms of silver of that statue, the Medes and the Persians. These are Persian kings. Babylon has now fallen to Persia, and they are the reigning empire during 
this time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. And then we might talk in a future podcast about the times of the Greeks, and then you get to the Romans, and that's when Jesus is right. going to come on and, the scene. And we're not surprised by the shifting of the, the kings and the monarchies and who's you know the leading impo- uh, power of the day, because that, that's exactly what happens in our day as well. Dynasties rise up and dynasties fall. Mm-hmm. Dynasties rise up and dynasties fall. And it's just a further proof that there is no kingdom on this earth that is going to be all-sufficient and going to be eternal, but only the kingdom of God is able to do that. And so that's just something to remember as we just kind of passively talk about these different kings that rose and then fell and then rose and then fell. Yeah. God's the ultimate king. And it seems so chaotic in the moment. Like, yeah. what's happening? These kingdoms are changing and ah. But it's like, God, God's got this all planned out. Yeah. Like he, it, like it says in Daniel, he rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. And that's just a helpful reminder for us now in whatever political upheaval and turmoil in our nation or in the world. Like God, God's in control. It's not about any earthly nation. It's not about this nation. Um, but it's about God's kingdom. And it, that's just powerful. i also just say that um, this is history that we're reading here. Yeah. You know, Israel's story is what the Bible's following. But it fits into th- world history, yep. and you can see, especially in these times, like you can go and read secular history and see how this yeah. fits in. It's really amazing, especially about these Persian kings and the Babylonian kings and the Assyrian kings. They are very well documented, and there's some really cool archaeology and articles and uh, different facts that you can research out outside of the Bible that confirms that these are real people, real men that we're talking about here. Yes. So th- that brings us to talking about Cyrus here. And I'm going to read the first two books, uh, excuse me, first two books, <laughs> first two verses of Ezra 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, um, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver, gold, goods, cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So that's Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. Yeah. And so this is really cool because it it bridges, again, kind of the gap that we've seen um, in here. And actually, these words are almost identically recorded at the end of 2 Chronicles. Yeah, so if you have a Bible and you're following along with this, you can just look on the left page or right above, depending on how your Bible's formatted, and see that it's very similar from the ending of 2 Chronicles. Yes. And and what we see here is that God is keeping his promises. Cyrus is not uh, really a servant of the Lord in the sense of, like, I don't know if he's worshiping Yahweh. I mean, he's probably also worshiping his Persian gods or whatever. But the Lord uses Cyrus and actually prophesied that this would happen. He talks about Jeremiah in verse 1, and we talked last week about how Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years and so Cyrus is part of that. But what's also really cool is if we rewind in the prophets and go back to Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 45, verse 1, and kind of following, Cyrus was named when Isaiah was prophesying like over a hundred years right. before Cyrus makes this proclamation, way before Cyrus was born. God said, okay, there's going to be a guy named Cyrus, and he's going to do my will. 
and he's going to open, like break the bars of iron. It's kind of the poetic description. The idea is like he's going to let him out of captivity, and so that is exactly what happens here. Is God keeps His promises through even these foreign kings and yeah. the things that they do. And it's really interesting. God is going to use these foreign nations to give them some of the support that they need to go back and rebuild, which is really cool that God is able to, to work in the kingdoms of men for his own purposes. Yeah. And let me just say that's happening today. God is still able to work through the kingdoms of men for his purposes. Yes. And which, by the way, it is a, a lot of this return from captivity, there's going to be some really interesting parallels to the exodus from Egypt. Mm-hmm way back, because that's when they came out of captivity in Egypt, if we can call it captivity. I mean, that's what it was. They were slaves. And then they came into the land the first time. Well, this is kind of like a reboot. That um, They've been in a different nation in captivity in Babylon and now Persia. And now they're coming kind of a new exodus again into the land. So it's interesting to see how the Bible themes kind of repeat themselves sometimes. And you can see parallels. So what happens in Ezra, uh, just again, overviewing this, they come back, and what's the first order of business? I mean, Jerusalem has been burned and destroyed, and um, they do have permission now to come back to occupy their land, but they get back, and the first thing they need to do is actually not build the walls or rebuild all these other things. They are back where God said the temple should be in Jerusalem. So first order of business is we've got to get the temple rebuilt. And what ends up happening is as they rebuild it, the temple that was destroyed was Solomon's temple. And it was incredible. It was just amazing. And so they rebuild, but it's just not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is what happens, um, let's see here, they they lay the foundation of the temple in chapter 3. Now, it's going to be a bumpy process until the whole thing is done, but they can see kind of the size of it and, and... in, in Ezra 3, starting in verse 11, it says uh, there, there's re- you know, rejoicing over this moment that the foundation's been laid, the work has begun. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. There's a complicated mixed emotions with this return from captivity because there's high hopes like oh we're coming back it's going to be like israel was and the people again it was 70 years of captivity there's a few people who could remember in their childhood Mm -hmm. you know they saw the old temple and they wept yeah because they're like this house ain't got nothing on what solomon built um and it's not even done yet but they're like it's just not it's just not the same and so there's this rejoicing and weeping at the same time and you can you can understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, can you kind of understand that the young people there that are that are trying to rebuild? They're, they're, they never really saw the Temple of Solomon, and they're just trying to do their best. And here, kind of the older people are weeping over the 
the discouraging nature of the one that they're trying to build. And it's just important to remember that the words of the one who built the temple they're weeping over, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7, said, Do not say why is it that the former days were better than these, mm-hmm. for it is not from wisdom that you ask about yeah, this. That's a good verse. <laughs> yeah. And so these folks, are they've completely missed the, the, the point of rebuilding the temple, and they're just comparing it to the old one. And it ends up stopping the work. Um, not only that, there are some adversaries that come in chapter 4 that also slow down the work as well. Yes, exactly. And that's what's so frustrating. is like they've come out of captivity and, and done all this stuff, and now there's more enemies, you know, who are trying to slow it down. And so there's these false accusations. They say, oh, they're not going to pay taxes. Oh, they're this. And so the king now stops the work and says, uh-oh, you know, I don't want them going back to Jerusalem and rebelling. So the, the sins letter, they stop the work. And for about 10 years, from about 530 to about 520 B.C., it stops. And so the, the temple work is like, okay, we can't do this anymore. Um, and so they've been like building their own houses and some other things. And this is where in chapter 5, two prophets come on the scene. And this is one really cool thing where like historically we know what's going on. And then we have what they wrote um, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah mm-hmm. are sent. And I love what it says in f- chapter Ezra 5.1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And this is really cool to see kind of this role of the prophet. They, they get things restarted, which, by the way, I don't think we said this earlier, but uh, Zerubbabel, who's mentioned here, was kind of the leader. He's not a king, but he's kind of a governor figure uh, who is leading the first wave mm-hmm. of captivity. So you're going to have Zerubbabel, and then later Ezra, and then later Nehemiah. So those three names kind of go together yeah. in this section. So that kind of leads us to, well, what are Haggai and Zechariah saying that get the people... Yeah going again. Haggai is a, is a cool little book. It's only two chapters. It's actually, you got to jump a good bit in your Bible to get <laughs> yeah. over to it, even though like chronologically they're close together uh, in the pages of the Bible. They're far apart. Yeah, the historical books are grouped together and the prophets are grouped together. And these are at the end of both of yeah. those sections. Yeah, exactly. So so Haggai is, uh, man, it's, it's a really cool little book. Um, man, it's like, I think 38 times in that book, it says, thus says the Lord God or something like that. It's like, Haggai is saying these things, but it's really the Lord who's trying to stir the people to build. And one of the things Haggai is going to try to get the people to think about, this is in Haggai two, uh, 1 2. The time is not, um, thus says the Lord host, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And he kind of stirs them to think about how it looks to God that they have been working on their own homes. They're dwelling in these paneled nice houses while the temple just lays absolutely desolate. And I just think there's some application there for ourselves as well. What, what spiritual things are just a wreck in our life? What things of God are a wreck in our life that we're just leaving there for the sake of trying to work on other stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Haggai comes along to stir them up to rebuild the temple, to, to get back to work. And he does a good job at that, and that's exactly what ends up happening. Yeah. It's really encouraging to see the successful prophets. Yeah. Because there's so many that, like, they just don't listen, they persecute them, they kill them. 
But Haggai is one of the most successful in a sense that like the people listen. Mm -hmm. And you can actually, it's kind of cool that in Haggai and Zechariah, there's a lot of actual historical uh, markers to say like on this day at this month that, you know, this is when they prophesied this. And hey, by the next month, they were up and working. Like he motivates them to do this. And so chapter one is all about like, wake up, get back to work. Um, And then you go read Ezra five and six. And like, that's what they do is they go and they remind the king of Persia, hey, remember what Cyrus said? Like, we have permission to do this from a Persian king. Like, we're going to go get back to work. And so they do. Um, And so Haggai 2 is kind of cool because the prophets are still, there's this balance of like preaching and prophecy in the sense of like foretelling. Prophecy really covers both of those things. But there's this future glorious vision of like, you know what? This temple, and I think it's interesting that he kind of references the weeping uh, and the disappointment of this. In verse uh, 3, Haggai 2 verse 3, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, Mm -hmm. declares the Lord of hosts. And he goes on to talk about how the later glory of the temple is going to be greater than Solomon's temple. That there's a temple coming that's going to be far more glorious than anything they've seen. He's like, are you disappointed with this one? Well, don't you worry. I've got bigger plans in store. And of course, ultimately what he's going to be talking about is not a physical temple. Yes, exactly. It's going to be God's people. Hang on to that. Think think about that statement there, that the, the temple that they're working on and that they're building Think about them thinking, oh, it's going to be, the glory is going to be better. Think about that for a second because it's going to come back full circle as we finish up Ezra in a little bit. Yeah. So if we skip on over into Zechariah, and, and man, there's just so much here that we're skipping over. But Zechariah is prophesying, you know, in tandem with Haggai right around the same time. And Zechariah um, is one of the more challenging prophets, I feel like, as far as like trying to wrap our minds around it. But it's really important because the book of Revelation, like we talked about with Daniel, there's so many like pictures and images from Zechariah that show up again in Revelation. So studying these books is really valuable for our full Bible knowledge. But Zechariah, it kind of divides into two halves. Zechariah 1 through 6, there's a series of eight visions that are meant to encourage an exhausted people. And we won't go through all eight of those right now, but they're, they're kind of cryptic at first. But as you read through them and process them and understand them, it's all talking about how God's going to be with his people. He's going to defeat their enemies. He's going to give them energy and fuel to keep going and doing his will. And it's really cool to think about how these visions would have really helped. Because, again, the temple had been – construction had stopped. except Just a foundation sitting there for like 10 years and people are probably feeling like, came all this way, we started, and now, like, how do we keep going? And so Haggai and Zechariah are giving these pictures, and particularly in Zechariah, these visions from God of saying, hey, I'm with you. You can do this. Get your tools back out. Let's, let's keep moving forward. And then the last half of Zechariah, 7 through 14, again, kind of like Haggai 1 is like the present, like, hey, let's work. And then the last half is like, hey, there's better stuff coming. Zechariah 7 through 14 is is more like the future stuff, saying like, hey, like there's going to be a king who's going to come back. And there's a lot of cool stuff in Zechariah about priest and king and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, and specifically a couple things that are noteworthy about Jesus in the book of Zechariah. Yes. Uh, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, mm-hmm. even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It reminds us of Jesus the, the him parading his way into Jerusalem. Yep. Um, the, and, yeah, go ahead. And the people would have known. They would have read Zechariah and be like, hey, ever since we came back to the land, we've been waiting for a king. Because even though we're back in the land, we have these governors and local leaders, but not like David and Solomon were, you know. And so they're waiting for a king. And when Jesus rides in on donkey, he's throwing down and saying, like, I am that king. Now, again, he's still going to shock them with what kind of king he is. They're expecting a David Solomon type king, and he's going to be different than that. There's another interesting thing with a specific moment with Jesus in Zechariah 11 and verse 12. Um, that has to do with the betrayal of Judas. And um, it says in, in Zechariah eleven twelve. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Um that's exactly what happens yeah. with Judas. He betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and ends up, after re- regretting that, throwing them into the temple mm-hmm. and basically trying to give it back. Um, and then, of course, they, they say, oh, this is blood money. We can't put this in the treasury, and they buy the field and all that. But all of this is in Zechariah. And again, this is still, what, like 400-ish years before, or I guess almost 500 now, um, before Jesus is ever born right. uh, and comes on the scene. And so these prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, really accomplish exactly what God wanted because the work continues on the temple. And now we're kind of jumping back to Ezra. But Ezra chapter 6, they finish the temple after 10 years of it stopping. And I think it still takes about four more years or so. The temple is finished around 516 after their work restarted in 520 or so. And again, some of these dates are a little approximate. But um, so there was still a lot of work to do once they got going again. But Zechariah and Haggai, like it said, were with them, strengthening them. And so it's really cool to see how Haggai and Zechariah work in with uh, these uh, this first wave of captivity and they get the temple built. But, or go ahead. Oh no! I was I was going to get into the the butt there. <laughs> yes, I think we were both going the same direction. Um, first off, how exciting would it be to get this temple done? Like they've been in captivity for so long, they finally come back. The temple work got stalled for ten or fifteen years, and now here they get back to it. They finally finish it. One of the the staples of completing a temple is the glory of God. Uh, you go back to the end of Exodus, you go to First Kings, or excuse me, Second Kings chapter 8. Anytime move-in day is there, yeah, it's like an incredible day. The glory of God consumes the temple, and it's just an overwhelming emotional day because God is dwelling with his people. And so you're kind of anticipating the same thing as you're reading through Ezra, as you're seeing them finish the temple. And I would imagine that they're anticipating the same thing as well. But it just records for us, uh, this is Ezra 6 um, in verse 15. 
This temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then you keep reading. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Okay, then they move in. No, then their sacrifices, and then they appoint priests. There's no mention of God's glory moving into this house. It's just not there. And you, if you're the people, or just the students of the Bible, you're saying, but it, I thought in Haggai, God said that the glory that's going to be in this house is going to be far greater than the one Solomon built. Well, that is true. But this isn't the temple that he had in mind. There was a far greater and better temple to come that is being prophesied and talked about here. That's right. And in a lot of ways, it, it will be this temple that, you know, several hundred years later that Jesus comes to. God is going to come into this temple, but it's going to be in a very different way than they ever anticipated. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. And so what's going to happen here is that there's like these three waves of return, and this is the end of the first one. Ezra 1 through 6 is kind of phase one. And each of these return waves is going to kind of end with a bit of an anticlimax, um, as far as like, well, the temple's done, but there's no mention of the glory. Like, wait, what? Like, th I thought that was the whole point. It's <laughs> so like, and that's not to say that like God is not accepting their offerings. Like, they're still able to offer and please God with the things there. But there's this like, wait, this is not, this is not like it was before. There's something missing. It's, it's not complete. We're back in the land, yes. But we don't really own the land. You know, we're still under the Persians. And we still don't have a king. And, you know, so so I think there's going to be this repeated anticlimax in, in each of these sections that leaves us wanting more at the end of the Old Testament. It's not like, okay, well, we're back in the land. Everything's cool. Like, well, well, no, you're back in the land, but there's still more to be completed. And so it, some of these are going to be kind of a cliffhanger that, of course, all leaves us longing for Jesus, and we'll see uh, that come in the New Testament. So in between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, there is a gap of about 60 years. And again, sometimes the way the Bible authors write is not the way we would do that. Yeah, because like, I mean, we read from chapter 6 to chapter 7. <laughs> we just right. kind of think it's going to go together. Exactly, because 7 is like, and after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, it's like, whoa. There's, um, there's 60 years in that after. 60 years! <laughs> like They just jumped over. And in that 60-year gap is most likely where the book of Esther fits in. Now, Esther, you got Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. <laughs> She's put after there. But if we could open up the book of Ezra and stick in Esther right here, that would be where Esther fits into the timeline chronologically. And what's really interesting about the book of Esther, so it's during the time of the Persian kings, um, is God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And so it sometimes feels weird. Like, well, this is, a, this is a Bible book, right? Like, why hasn't God talked about it? But the beautiful thing is, is when you read the story of Esther, you're going to see God's hand all over the place, his providence and how he takes care of his people. Because really the whole book of Esther is about this episode in Israel's history during the Persian Empire where they were almost completely annihilated that there was actually a day that was fixed that said hey open season on the jews <laughs> like you could just go kill them and like that's okay and i mean how terrifying would that be and so esther is this really interesting story in, in chapters one and two she rises to influence um 
And, and there's some stuff in Esther, by the way, that's like really not G-rated. Uh, when you actually figure out like what's going on, the, the people in Esther are not always acting in a godly way. Um, but Esther rises to influence as part of the king's set of wives and concubines. And this is around 480 BC or so. so. Again, some of this is hard to nail down, a hard date. But the conflict in Esther comes in chapters 4 through 7, where there's a guy named Haman, who is super offended by a Jew named Mordecai, and grossly overreacts and decides, well, Mordecai's a Jew, I'm just going to wipe them all out. And, and Haman has some influence with the king as mm-hmm. well. The king is really the like totally a pushover in Esther. Yeah, which is not what you're used to from the other books of the Bible. Yeah. So, so Haman uh, gets this date arranged of where, all right, we're going to wipe out the Jews. And then through a really fascinating series of seemingly disconnected events, everything gets turned on its head. And Haman ends up getting executed on his own execution device that he built for Mordecai. And it's like totally upside down. And again, God's not mentioned, but you can see how even like when the the story all changes, it's not Esther doing something or Mordecai doing something. It's like, and the king couldn't sleep that night. And then just one thing leads to another. And long story short, Esther ends up stepping up in a huge way. She sticks out her neck for the people, um, which is probably the famous statement in Esther is uh, in Esther 4. Or Mordecai tells her, okay, this is your moment to, to step up. If, if you don't step up, God's still going to take care of his people, but it's going to be on you that you didn't step up. But uh, in Esther 4, uh, it's this moment where it says uh, in verse um, 14, Esther 4.14, 14, Mordecai talking to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther takes that encouragement and steps out. And her courage ends up reversing things with Haman. He's executed. But unfortunately, even though Haman's gone, that day of execution or the day of like, you know, slaughtering the Jews is still coming. And with the law of the Persians, you can't undo that. So the last part of Esther, verses uh, chapters 8 through 10, is where the Lord ends up providing protection from the slaughter. Esther is able to use her influence with the king to say, like, hey, the Jews can fight back. And they do, and there's a great victory for the Jews. And so all of this sets up uh, a feast day that's not one of the Old Testament feasts in the Law of Moses, but it's a feast called Purim. And uh, it's kind of cool because that's what the Jews celebrate when their nation was almost annihilated and God took care of them through the influence of Esther. Yeah, and I and Esther see a lot of what we would call poetic justice, but really it's just the providence of God. Yes. Um, and there's actually a really cool chiastic structure to Esther where it's almost a full reversal is done by the end of the book uh, to see that those who were humbled have now been exalted and those that were exalted have now been humbled. 
And it's just, it's a really providential book. And I think it's intentional that God's name is not mentioned in it. And uh, so that we can see God working even when his name is not, you know, explicitly used in the book. And so we see that in our lives as well all the time. That's right. So that brings us back over to Ezra 7 through 10, picking up after 70, uh, excuse me, after 60 years of, of a bit of a break. So in Ezra 7 through 10, um, you have another decree um, of Artaxerxes, and we won't get into all the Persian king names and stuff. Sometimes that can get a little confusing. Um, there's another decree where uh, there's another opportunity for the Jews to return. And Ezra, it's kind of funny because the book is called Ezra, but Ezra is not even on the scene or mentioned until chapter 7 yeah. of the book that bears his name, right. which is kind of funny. So Ezra is kind of the main one in uh, chapter in 7 through um, 10 of Ezra. Ezra himself comes back, and he isn't so much coming back with a building project. He's coming back to teach the people the yeah. law. It, he's he's a restoration guy, but not so much with construction, but with people's hearts and with people's souls. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about Ezra, I'll say this as well, is how much of genealogy and also um, just uh, numbers are mentioned in the book of Ezra as well, to make it clear that the, these are real people, that they kept account count in a census of who who all was there on that day. Yes, and again, these are real people, uh, you know, chronicled and, and recorded. Um, I, I love uh, in Ezra 7, verse 10, it, it tells us what Ezra was about. In, in Ezra 7, 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I mean, what a great three-part mm-hmm. <laughs> summary, uh, or even four-part maybe. Uh, he set his heart to do three things. To study the law of the Lord, one, and then to do it himself, and then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Um, that's Ezra, Ezra's mission. It is he is a priest, and he's coming back to tell the people what they need to hear. But even before he's teaching, which is kind of the main thing you think of him for, he set his heart to study it himself. And then to do it. I mean, that's exactly what we all need to do, right? Like, we have the Word of God. And like Ezra, we need to study it carefully so that we know what God wants. And then before we teach it, we need to do it. I mean, Jesus talked about, you know, the speck and the plank. Like, don't be going to get the speck out of your brother's eye. If you've got a log in your own eye, Ezra's like, okay, I got to get this right, too. And then I can see clearly to go and teach my brother in Israel uh, to teach the statutes and laws of God. And and so that's Ezra's mission. Uh, that's how uh, he, he goes back and what he plans to do. Yeah, and so in chapter 8, 9, 10, and uh, 11, we see the folks in the in the book of Ezra really starting to realize their how sinful that they've been. Um, and that's really not all that surprising because the law is being read to them. They're finally able to wrap their heads around really the broken covenant relationship with with God. Um, And so a lot of that has to do with marriages. Um, They had taken foreign wives when God had told them not to. And in chapter 10, I said chapter 11, sorry, chapter 10, they confess that sin to God and they seek to be reconciled with him. And it's a really beautiful thing to see these people humbling themselves before their God. 
Yes. And just as a side note, we've mentioned this in the past that when God forbids intermarriage, it's not about like a race thing. It's about spiritual things where like these foreigners did not worship God. They did not love the Lord, and he knew that they would lead their hearts astray. So it was a religious thing and not, not a racial thing. Um, but Ezra, again, kind of ends on this anticlimax because he comes back, and the people are a mess. Um, even though the temple has been rebuilt, they need to rebuild the temple in their hearts, so to speak. Like, they didn't actually serve the Lord. And so there's this uh, you know, record at the end of all the people who had participated in this sin and are now having to repent and it's this painful you know separation of families and things and that's just how the book ends like Ezra's just like very abrupt you know um uh, in in Ezra 10:44 uh the last verse of the book all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children now, granted, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one scroll, but that's that's the end of that part of, of Ezra. And so it's like, well, the people are back in the land. The temple's rebuilt, but the people are still a mess. And, like, they really need some internal change. that They need uh, to repent and really come back to God. Um, it's not about just being in a physical place or just having a physical building. God's goal for his people is to be transformed by the renewing of their mind and to actually become a living sacrifice and be different than the nations around them. Yep. And so that leads us pretty well into the book of Nehemiah, which is kind of the counterpart to Ezra. Uh, Ezra had the responsibility of rebuilding the temple and putting all that together. But Nehemiah comes in and he is going to have a different mission, but he also starts off in captivity. Um, And specifically, we're told he's in Susa, which is the capital of Persia. And he is serving as a cupbearer in Artaxerxes' uh, household, um, in his in his courtship, and his kingship, whatever you want to say there. And, and, this, and this is about 10 years after Ezra came back. So just for a time frame reference, there were like 60 years between Ezra 6 and 7, and Nehemiah picks up about 10 years after what we're reading in the book of Ezra. And so in Nehemiah 1, uh, we're told that uh, Hanani comes to Nehemiah, and this is what he says to him in verse 3 of Nehemiah 1. The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Uh, Nehemiah says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Uh, An appropriate response, first off. But can you imagine Nehemiah being far, far away from home and getting the news back that everyone you love, your, your family, your friends, they've been decimated, that the, the land is not what it once was. And more than that, there's no protection in that city anymore. The wall itself has been burned down. They're in a pitiful state. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart to hear this. And he is in Susa has a pretty desirable job as the cupbearer before the king. I think it would be really easy for Nehemiah to just suggest, you know, you know what, this really isn't my problem. I don't know what I have to do with this. But this weighs on Nehemiah's heart, and he takes that to God and devises a plan to go back and to rebuild the temple walls, or excuse me, rebuild the city walls in Jerusalem. But he's not just going to be able to walk out. That's not how that works. He can't just leave. And so what ends up happening is Nehemiah asks for permission from the king 
to go and rebuild the walls back in Jerusalem. And as we saw the providence of God in Ezra and in Esther, we see it in Nehemiah as well, because the king will not only permit Nehemiah to leave, but he will give him the supplies he needs, the decrees he needs, and the manpower that he needs to go back and effectively rebuild the temple walls. Um, and so Nehemiah, he, he makes his way back, and he spends the first three days there uh, just kind of surveying the damage, looking around, um, seeing how bad it really is. And the kind of the first obstacle Nehemiah is going to have to cross uh, is to get the people to realize that they're in a bad state. <laughs> you live in filth for long enough, you don't really realize you're in filth. And that's kind of what had happened to these people. Nehemiah, after surveying the walls, looks at them. This is in Nehemiah 2, in verse 17. Uh, Nehemiah says, I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. And so Nehemiah encourages and inspires them to get back to work. There's more work to do than just the temple being built. We need to build walls back around. And God's hand has clearly been on us. Um, but as soon as Nehemiah inspires this hope in them, there's also opposition that they meet uh, from a couple of guys that resurface throughout the book named Sanballat and Tobiah. And uh, they're pretty annoying guys. <laughs> they, they keep coming up and... Uh, at one point, they'll say, if a fox jumps on that wall, it's going to fall over. And they're just a, a thorn in the side of the people. And chapter 3 kind of lists through the different people that are, that are putting their hand to the good work of building. Um, and it's really cool to read through that sometimes. It's like a perfumer that like <laughs> has a hand in it and the jewelers and all these other kinds of guys that normally wouldn't normally pick up a hammer. But they're putting their hand to the good work of rebuilding the wall. Um, and so God's hand is all over this, and the people have a determination to build this wall, and they're able to do so in 52 days. Yes, and I love uh, what it says about their mindset in, in Nehemiah 4, verse 6. So we, and this is after the opposition of Sambalat and Tobiah, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And it's just so cool to see that Nehemiah is neither a prophet, a priest, or a king. He's just like a normal dude. Um, now, granted, he's cupbearer to the king, so he has some influence and opportunity in a special position. But he's not an appointed leader of Israel. He just sees the need, and he steps up, and he goes back, and he motivates the people, and they start to build. And so, um, like you said, uh, when you get to chapter um, 6, it only took 52 days. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 15, the wall, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, um, in 52 days. Now, it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought like all of Nehemiah was about building the walls. We still got like several chapters here yeah. to read. And again, what we see is there is a physical component. God is bringing them physically back to the land. They physically rebuild the temple. They physically rebuild the walls. But the people still need to change their hearts. And so chapters 1 through 7 of Nehemiah are really about rebuilding the walls physically. And chapters 8 through 13 of Nehemiah are really about rebuilding the people. Because mm -hmm. even after Ezra's help, which by the way, Ezra's still here during the time of Nehemiah. Again, this is just 10 years later when Nehemiah comes back. And Ezra's going to show up here 
um, there's going to be another round of repentance for some of the same sins in chapters 8 through tw- uh, 10 of, of Nehemiah. Yeah, and there's some really cool passages that just really stand out in Nehemiah. Uh, one I like to read, chapter 4, verse 14. When I saw the people's fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And I just love the priority that he puts there. First, we fight for the Lord. Uh, He is great. He is awesome. And then we're also going to be fighting for our families here. And there are just so many different spiritual applications uh, for different struggles we have. Um, And then they proceed to work on the wall with a sword in one hand and a weapon in the other, and they're just determined to do this good work, and they end up doing just that. Um, But like Stephen said, the the back half of this book um, is not only filled with a a record and census and chronicles of who all was involved in this work, but also Ezra pops up in this book and reads the law before them, and they realize the sin that they're in, and they're going to have to repent of that sin. And part of that is the mixed marriages. Yes. And, and this, again, starts with Ezra uh, reading the law. Again, he had set his heart to study, to do, and to teach. And so he, he reads the law, and it's kind of cool. Like they, they stand up for hours to listen to the word of God, which, again, it apparently had fallen into neglect. And Ezra is part of the one taking initiative to just get the words of God back in front of the people so that they know, oh, whoa, God said to do that. I, I forgot. And I need to change and repent. And so, again, they come back to, um, well, first of all, they start off by keeping, like, the Feast of Booths and, like, reinstating some of the feasts that they had neglected for a long time. But then in chapter 9, we have another prayer of confession. In Ezra 9, there was a prayer of confession. Nehemiah 9, there's this prayer of confession. And so the people realize what they've done wrong, and then they even write a document. It's like, we're going to repent. We are going to do this. And in chapter 10, they say, all right, we're going to do three things that we have neglected to do. One, we're going to stop with the intermarriage to these idolatrous people who are leading us astray. Number two, we're going to keep the Sabbath, the the day and the year. We're we're going to hold to the law. And three, we're going to maintain the temple and and maintain, you know, the priesthood. Because even after Zerubbabel and the first wave came back in Ezra 1 through 6 and rebuilt the temple, you have to keep maintaining it. And like it had fallen into disrepair, and they weren't given the offerings and the uh, tithes like they should. So the priests weren't able to do what they were supposed to do. And like, we got, okay, we've got to stop that. We've got the temple again. Now we need to actually use it. <laughs> That's the thing is, like, sometimes we, we have the physical things we need. We just got to use them. <laughs> and so that's what they commit to do. And they do. Um, they, they, they do what God said, um, and they repent. So things are good. And then they're like, man, like, well, nobody's been living in Jerusalem because it has no walls. Who wants to live in an unwalled city? You know, you got no protection from roaming, you know, enemies or whatever. And so chapters 11 and 12, uh, they figure out, okay, here's who's going to come and live in the city. Here's the priests and the Levites who are going to serve in the temple. And at the end of chapter 12, there's this cool uh, dedication ceremony where they get like two worship teams to march in opposite directions along the wall and then meet up at the other end. So like the whole wall is dedicated by this worship of God as they like march around the top of the wall. It's really a cool uh, scene in, in chapter 12. But even though the walls have been done for a little bit, it's like, okay, we've repented now. And like, God, please bless this city, bless this wall. And uh, that's how uh, chapter 12 ends.
But then chapter 13, as we've talked about with Zerubbabel and then the glory not filling the temple, with Ezra kind of ending with the, the, the failure of the people, um, chapter 13 happens a little bit later, uh, you know, 433. This is about like 20 years later. Yeah. So, let me just say, Nehemiah's an old man at this point. Seriously. Yeah. And, and like a fired up guy about this too. Um, that's just one of the things that always sticks out to me. Um, when he finds out, um, this is in chapter 13 in verse uh, 24, as for the children have spoken the language of Ashdod and none of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters uh, to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Uh, he is fired up about this and rightfully so. Uh, he has tried to set this nation back on the right path. Um, he even invokes the name of Solomon in verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made his king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you, that you've committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by mar marrying foreign women? Um, and so Nehemiah, he, he is pretty fired up about this and we got to be fired up about allowing sin to creep into our life as well may we have the same fire in our belly that nehemiah has yeah amen and so in in this chapter uh, like you've already mentioned they they have reneged on the exact three things that they promised they would do yeah. uh in the first part of the chapter they had neglected the temple and actually even one of the enemies tobiah who had given them so much trouble before he was living in the temple complex. Like, what? So they've really neglected the temple. Uh, they've also started profaning the Sabbath again. They're working on the Sabbath. And they're inter intermarrying. Uh, and so Nehemiah is, is right to be so frustrated with the people. And, and the book ends with Nehemiah praying to God um, and says, I've cleansed them from everything foreign. And I like what he says at the very end in Nehemiah 13, 31, remember me, O oh my God, for good. Um, it has to be discouraging, you know, with this kind of anticlimax, like, Lord, I've tried so hard to do good, and it feels like all my work has just been for nothing. But remember me for good, God. And I, I don't believe he did. Um, Nehemiah did a tremendous work, um, though even Nehemiah himself was not perfect in this book. He uh, just tried so hard. But again, we're left with this longing for like, hey, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more to really renovate the hearts of this people. Um, we're back in the land, the walls are rebuilt, but we're still needing repentance. That That is like kind of how each of the three phases of this end. Um, and so this kind of leads us to the last prophet that we haven't discussed, that it's hard to exactly date the book of Malachi uh -huh. to know exactly when he's prophesying, but we're pretty certain that he is the last of the writing prophets, and he's prophesying sometime during Ezra Nehemiah, um, this return from captivity. And Malachi is going to kind of close out the Old Testament with these messages that that generation needed to hear. Yeah, it really is an appropriate ending to the Old Testament because it ends with some anticipation. Malachi just literally, his name means my messenger. Um, which is kind of cool because in chapter 3 and verse 1, he'll say, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, which is Malachi. So it's kind of cool that oh, it yeah, works out cool. that way. That. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyways, Malachi 
um, don't really know anything about his background. Some of the other prophets, we, we get a good bit about their background, but Malachi really just don't know a whole lot about him. But uh, Malachi 3 and verse 1, or excuse me, Malachi 1 and verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Uh, though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people today whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi starts off immediately into judgment um, for not only Edom, but also kind of setting up a pattern for what's going to happen throughout the rest of Malachi, especially in chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Israel almost is blaming God or questioning his judgment of them. Uh, you see it again in verse 6, um, whenever he condemns the priests who despise God's name, but you say, how have we despised your name? It's like they're questioning how it is, even is in the first place um, that, that they've done wrong. And that, that is a wicked heart. That's a prideful heart. And Malachi is trying to straighten that out, not only in the priest's, but also just in the different families uh, throughout Israel. Yeah, I guess one of the famous you know scenes here in the beginning. I mean, the priests are confronted a whole lot by the prophets, but they've been bringing leftovers to God. Right. In chapter one, you're bringing the lame and the blind, and he's like, "Give that to your governor." You know, like this is ridiculous. If I'm a king, God is a king. Well, of course, I'm not going to accept these you know sacrifices that are second rate and you know the stuff that you didn't want anyway. Um, and so Malachi really lays into the people, especially in the first couple of chapters. But then kind of three and four, as we often see in the prophets, is kind of more like heavy-handed stuff and then some hope for the future. In three one, he talks about, Behold, I send my messenger, which is kind of cool. I'd forgotten that Malachi's name meant my messenger. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant... In whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But then he's going to talk about it's going to be tough when he comes. There's going to be judgment when he comes. But there's this prophecy about, actually, John the baptizer yes. who's going to come. And we're going to see these prophecies quoted about John, um, who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And what's cool about this is the Lord coming to his temple. Because that goes back to you know the first wave, and they built the temple, and the Lord... The Lord's glory didn't right. come to the and, temple. And I, I think there is something to key in on here in three one that Stephen already read. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. That there seems to be an anticipation from these Jewish people in this day that there that the Lord hasn't even come in his fullness yet, but the, they're waiting for it to happen. Which is really cool because by the time you get into the New Testament, not only in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts. You see really what is another temple scene in Acts chapter 2 when the glory of God consumes them on the day of Pentecost as the apostles speak with tongues as a fire and a bunch of other cool imagery uh, going on there as well. But, but for now, uh, the short end of this is that God is saying, we're not done yet. There's more to come. I'm sending a messenger ahead of you that's going to be messaging for someone else that's coming along. And the book of Malachi ends with this anticipation of, well, who is he talking about? Who is coming? Uh, who is this guy that's going to be um, coming, and when is it going to happen? 
Yes. And so there, there still is in the last half of Malachi some rebuke. And you know, you've been robbing God, not giving your tithes and things like that. But Malachi ends on this note of like what's going to happen at the end. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, the day of the Lord can mean a lot of different things in the prophets and in the New Testament. It's a day of judgment, a day when the Lord comes to set things straight. And so in chapter 4, he talks about the day's coming. Um, the righteous are going to be rewarded. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There's some cool images here. But um, at the end of Malachi, the Old Testament ends with these words, at least in our English Bibles or Malachi's at the end. In Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And again, the New Testament is going to be really clear about this Elijah is not literally Elijah. This is going to be John the Baptizer, preparing the way for Jesus. But do you know what it says here? The thing that's been missing, even in the rebuilding of the temple and the walls, is the hearts of the people. That they're still needing to repent. They're still needing to come back. And that's what he's going to do. The goal of God in sending these prophets over and over again is to get to the heart of his people. And that's what John is going to do as he comes and proclaims, repent, because the kingdom is finally coming. The king is on his way. Get ready and get your hearts right before him. Turn around and be ready because he's on the scene even now. And he prepares the way for Jesus, the king, to come as he promised and fulfill the promises to Abraham and to David and the whole story of the Old Testament is building us up to be ready for King Jesus to come on the scene. Yeah. So I hope that makes you excited to want to move over to the New Testament because that's that's exactly uh, what, what the whole goal of the Old Testament is, is to make you excited to, to get to Jesus and to read about him and to talk about him. And I hope you're excited to share these things with other people because it, it's really cool to see it um, in the full picture. Um, So, Lord willing, we are going to continue our Old Testament overview, and we're going to move out of the history section as we've just completed it, but there's another section of the Old Testament that we haven't talked about that we want to spend an episode on, and that's going to be on the wisdom books or the wisdom literature. So that's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Solomon. And so, Lord willing, we're going to dig into those next week and kind of discuss the benefit of those in our Bible study today. Yeah, and part of the reason is they're just historically scattered all throughout Correct. the Old yeah. Testament. And with, I mean, multiple different authors. I, don't, I might have to get a tally on how many different authors there might be there. Yeah, we'll talk about that next time. But th- thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying what you hear, please leave us a rating or a review. Don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to study more, uh, if you have questions about these books, uh, we'd love to hear from you and study with you. 717-585-0949. You can text us or call us there or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on personal studies or group studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.